This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 27. Matthew follows Jesus through the various trials on the night before the crucifixion, starting with the Jewish trial, which was a farce of injustice and fake indignation. Now Jesus is presented to the Roman government so they can legally pronounce his death sentence on Jesus. This first part of the Roman trial is led by Pilate, though he tries to drag Herod into the mix. Pilate is a man in a precarious position, trying to please everyone and still keep the peace. He's confronted with the obvious truth about Jesus and still he drops the ball. He's an example of how every person must confront the truth about Jesus, and he's an example of what not to do, as we'll learn from today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 27, and we're going to read verses 11 through 19. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So let's stop right there. That's sort of half of the judicial proceeding. Here's a good time to stop. Let's contemplate here the wisdom, the majesty, the authority, and the perfection of Jesus and draw every application we can from this. First of all, let's talk about the accusation, first part of verse 11 here. Now, Matthew had already exposed the illegality of the Jewish trial of Jesus. Now, he reveals the illegitimacy of the Roman case. Now, describing the same event, John places this scene in the Praetorium, Pilate's official residence, whenever he traveled to Jerusalem, something sort of a governor's mansion there. He lived in Caesarea Philippi, but he had headquarters in Jerusalem. And the reason he would travel to the holy city every year for the Passover is is not hard to understand. He wanted to maintain order, especially because many, many pilgrims would flock to the city. And that made him nervous. But John also calls out the hypocrisy of the accusers who remained outside the praetorium. They refused to enter Gentile headquarters or Gentile dwellings so as not to be defiled ceremonially. John 18, verse 28. Now, think about the hypocrisy of that. They are committing murder and deception and manipulating the execution of Christ. But we're not going to be defiled. We're not going to be ceremonially defiled. Their hearts were already darkened by sin. Now, Luke observes that the Sanhedrin, after fabricating a blasphemy charge, concocted now an accusation that would catch the attention of the Romans. They knew that the blasphemy charge would mean absolutely nothing to Pontius Pilate. So therefore, they had to concoct this accusation of insurrection. So their indictment 
read something like this, Luke 23, verses 1 through 2. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Well, that is true. The second part of that indictment is true. The first part, he forbade paying taxes to Caesar, is not true. Now, they describe Christ as an insurrectionist because Pilate would have immediately ordered crucifixion if the charge held true. And the reason for that, church, is because Rome had a zero tolerance for revolutionaries. In fact, the Praetorian Guard had Barabbas in custody for that very reason. According to Luke 23, verse 19, he was an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary. But obviously, the accusation against Jesus could not be substantiated. The accusation that he forbade paying taxes to Caesar. Now, in the early stages of the trial, Pilate actually followed Roman protocol in hearing the accusation against the prisoner here according to John he asked the accusers to state the charges here to state the indictment but the would-be prosecutors expose their inadequacy when they answer if this man were not an evildoer we would not have delivered him to you John 18 verse 30 think about the ridiculousness of that answer the deputy DA comes to the grand jury and says I have these charges against this guy here and the grand jury says okay what are the charges And the deputy DA will say, well, uh, uh, he's a criminal. That's the charge. Well, wait a minute. Can you be a little more specific? That's what these guys are doing here. This is arrogant. This is pride. They hate Pilate. They're not buddies. Here they hate each other. Did the Sanhedrin really have an interest in cooperating with the oppressors and preserving Roman occupation? Of course not. They would not bring a, a Jewish insurrectionist to Rome and say, well, he's a criminal. And Pilate knows this. Pilate knows that these guys are snakes. Now, the members of the Sanhedrin here expected the governor to act without due diligence. They really thought that a civil official here would sign off on a death sentence based on such a vague indictment. But Pilate didn't take the bait. He put the proverbial ball in their metaphorical court by instructing them like this, according to John 18, verse 31. Take him yourselves. If he's a criminal, if he's violating your laws, take him yourselves, it says, and judge him according to your own law. So far, so good. He's trying to do the right thing. When the chief priests and elders reminded him that they did not have permission to execute prisoners, then he interrogated Jesus. Again, this was his prerogative as a government. Now, a little different model of government than we have today. Provincial governors or prefects had the authority to judge. They had the authority to interrogate prisoners here. So he did this. He interrogated the accused. But interestingly, church, the first question here of this scene articulates the very purpose of the Gospel of Matthew. Did you notice that? When he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now let's pause for a moment and think about this question because every question that is asked here in this scene has a very important point of application for all of us. There are three questions asked here in this scene that are very important for us to pause and think about. So here's the first one. Every human being who ever walked on the earth will need to deal with this question. Are you a king? It's the question of Christ's authority to rule. Either we acknowledge his supreme kingship or we deceive ourselves into thinking humanity reigns absolute. And that is the question of the ages. Either Jesus is who he claims to be, and if he is a king, he's the king of the Jews, who happens to be the king of kings, he has the authority to rule over my life. So we must grapple with that question. Is this man really a king? How we answer Pilate's question, therefore, will determine whether we live a Christ-centered life or a self-centered life. There is no third option. Either Christ rules in your heart or you yourself rule in your heart. You call the shots or Christ calls the shots. 
And however we answer that question will ultimately determine our eternal destiny. And we, even those of us who are believers, who have received Christ and He reigns supreme in our hearts, sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we want to take the throne back, don't we? But the King of the Jews is the King of Kings, according to Revelation 19, verse 16. He reigns supreme. He has the authority to rule. But let's look at the answer, second half of verse 11 through verse 12. According to John, the two men actually carried on a conversation. John 18, verses 34 through 38. Listen to the whole dialogue here. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Remember, this is the question that Pilate asked Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And Pilate answered to him, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? You see, Jesus turned his own illegal trial here into an opportunity to lead a governor to the truth, to lead a magistrate to the truth. And in the process, he refuted his own accusation of insurrection without defending himself. There's no need for him to defend himself. And by the way, he is the truth. Remember, from his own words, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So evidently, the members of the Sanhedrin positioned themselves within earshot. Remember, they were not in the praetorium. But they positioned themselves within earshot and somehow heard the dialogue, which infuriated them even more. They said, what? He's the truth? So they kept yelling the charges. But after this dialogue here with Pilate, Jesus remained quiet. And the reason for that, church, is because he's got nothing else to say to his accusers. The time for Christ to testify to them is over. They have rejected Christ completely. He has nothing more to say to them. But because they have rejected their Messiah... They could only receive his silence. And that is frightening, church, because next time they hear from him will be in the great white throne judgment when God will pronounce his indictment against them. What a horrifying prospect. And I'm afraid, church, that our society now faces this reality, this horrifying reality, the silence of Christ, when Christ simply has nothing else to say after the rejection of people. Now, when a culture or a government demands devotion from people, they usurp the throne of Jesus. They are going outside. They're going beyond their God-given responsibility here. Now, they may bully subjects into submission, either by legislation or by intimidation. They may think that they have successfully put Christ's values on trial, but the problem is that God's wrath is on them in the form of His absence. Now, a society that wallows in immorality, deception, and perversion may think that is experiencing progress, but according to the Bible, they are facing divine judgment. The reason we know that is because what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, present tense, is revealed now, not future tense. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I'm afraid our culture is experiencing now the wrath of God. 
Not fire and brimstone. Those are going to happen in the future. But we must warn our society in the present against the silence of Christ. It's when God gives somebody over, in this case a whole culture, a whole society, when God gives them over to their perversions. I'm afraid we're experiencing that right now. When Christ no longer answers, church, when he no longer testifies of the truth in a nation, i.e., when the church is silent, watch out. Watch out. But after the accusation and the answer here, this unjust trials features the amazement. Let's talk about that. The amazement from Pilate, verses 13 through 14. Now, Jesus' silence puzzled the Roman governor. Such a calm demeanor does not fit the stereotype of a political assassin. If he's a rebel, this would have been his time to protest. This would have been his time to state his case. But Christ's quietness here fulfills biblical prophecy, namely Isaiah 53, verse 7. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So he's fulfilling prophecy here. His tranquility also comes from the peace that transcends all understanding. Any other wrongfully accused prisoner would have been desperately begging for mercy and justice. Therefore, the second question of the trial addresses the issue of Jesus' resolve. You see, the first one talks about his royalty Are you the king of the Jews? Therefore, he has authority to rule if he is. And he is. He proved to be. The second question now addresses his resolve. He is quiet because he is marching triumphantly to the cross in order to fulfill the plan of God. Nothing would dissuade him from accomplishing his mission. I hope that you are in awe of our Savior here. And I hope that I can experience this type of spiritual sobriety when I'm in crisis. And that's the lesson for us today from this particular question that Pilate asked Jesus here. Man, how can you be quiet in a situation like this? How can you be so silent? Well, the reason for that, church, is because Jesus is completely at peace. That is the peace that the world does not give. And he already offered his peace to his followers. Again, in John 14, verse 27, he says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So Jesus is really practicing what he preaches. He says, I have the peace that surpasses all understanding. He's about to be whipped Roman style, tortured Roman style here. The father is going to turn his face away from him temporarily. And he's at peace completely. This is the peace of sound sleep in the middle of a storm. This is the calmness that says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Psalm 16 verse 8. This is the level of Christ-like spiritual maturity that wastes no time in defending self because we're too busy rejoicing in the Lord. See, when you do what God wants you to do, church, opposition, accusations... And even threats will come your way. It's not a question of if. It's a matter of when. If you're going to do what God wants you to do, just know that you will be opposed. You may receive accusations against you, false accusations, certainly threats from the spiritual realm, but the serenity of a clear conscience is priceless. And we see here the serenity of someone, I am doing what God wants me to do. I do not care how I'm going to end up because I know that my father is going to take care of me, even if I experience temporary suffering and pain. And you will find no need to plead your case because you have God fighting for you. 
So as soon as Pilate heard that Jesus was a Galilean, here's another twist to this story here. He thought he would eliminate this moral dilemma by tossing the matter to Herod Antipas. By the way, Herod was also in Jerusalem at this time, according to Luke 23, verses 6 through 7. But again, Jesus demonstrates the same type of quietness and tranquility there too when he was faced with Herod. In fact, people were mocking him, and he's quiet, he doesn't say a word. So the tetrarch here, Herod, sent him back to Pilate. He said, well, here, he's your problem, not mine. So clearly the false king of the Jews, and that's Herod, did not see Christ as a rival. So Herod upheld the not guilty verdict. Finally, they agreed on something. And that something is that the prisoner posed no threat to the stability of Rome, to the embarrassment of the Jewish priests and elders of that time. So we looked at the accusation and the answer and the amazement. Now, this unjust trial also features the attempt, verses 15 through 18. And what I mean by the attempt is the attempt of Pilate is desperate at this point. He's trying to get rid of Jesus here. He doesn't want this moral dilemma in his hands. He knows the man is innocent. Herod already verified that fact. He finds no guilt in Christ. He wants to get rid of this dilemma. Now, the short dialogue with the God-man and the demeanor of Jesus profoundly impacted Pilate. Now, he had presided over these trials numerous times. This is what he did. But there was something special about this glorious prisoner here. Whether motivated by his hatred for the Jews or by political strategy, he wanted to free Christ. And that's he attempted to free Christ, which actually derailed the plans of the Sanhedrin. They wanted him to go to the cross. Now, the occupying force maintained order with conquered subjects by intimidation. We already know that. Remember, Rome tolerated no attempts of uprising. They had a zero tolerance on that. One of the ways that they maintained order was by intimidation, lining up Roman roads with crucified victims in different stages of decomposition. And the idea for any traveler, any people walking along those roads was, well, see what happens when you try an insurrection against the government? You're going to end up like this. Now, there was another strategy that was particularly effective in the province of Judea, and that strategy was to grant amnesty to the prisoner of the people's choice during the Passover feast, okay? And the reason for that strategy is not hard to figure out. This act communicated the following message. See, we're not so oppressive. In fact, we're so good and so generous, we're going to grant amnesty here to this one. You choose the prisoner. And again, this is not an act of compassion, church. This is a strategy because it's less costly to avoid a riot than to control it. So releasing prisoners for political gain is nothing new. The Roman governor, therefore, activated his clemency powers to appeal to the mobs for political gain. He knew Jesus was innocent, and he thought that when given the option, at least the people would make the right choice. Now, what a mistake. Look at verse 18 here. Pilate immediately spotted the scheme of the Jewish leaders and identified their motivation. Immediately. And Matthew says that. Well, he knew that because of envy, they were doing this. See, when Jesus says, no, I am the only way to the Father, well, that, that immediately caused the conflict. It immediately caused jealousy in them. And they would tolerate no competition for the hearts of people. And that's what prompted the whole thing. Again, there is nothing new under the sun, church. Many religions today still preach that observance to rules brings people to the Father. They'll say, well, if you only observe these things here, and we're going to keep adding to it, then yes, you, you are saved. You, you have to come to our system before you go to heaven. Every quote-unquote Christian cult is like that. If you leave that quote-unquote cult, you are anathema. You have forfeited your right to salvation. So there's nothing new here. 
Now, leaders in these systems lead by fear. That is exactly what these folks are doing here. And Jesus led by love. You see, and that's the difference, by grace. Now, many people hate Jesus today because of envy. It's the reason his name causes controversy. It's the reason people decline the offer of salvation. No one likes to be dethroned or to give up perceived control. See, that's the problem. A lot of people, when they reject Christ, it's not because of a lack of evidence. It's not because the gospel is not reasonable. It's not because the gospel doesn't make sense. It's because the gospel confronts the human heart. And the human heart says, I will reign supreme in my life. But when we present the message that Christ is Lord, that Christ is King, wait a minute. I'm not sure I believe that. It's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of rebellion. Even those of us who are born again sometimes secretly desire to take back the throne of our lives. Isn't that true? So there's the accusation, the answer, the amazement, and the attempt. Let's conclude everything here, at least for today, with the alarm. Verse 19. Now, Pilate's wife, whose name was Procula, that Bible doesn't say this, this is in the uh, uh, history books, informs him about her mysterious dream of the innocence of the accused, which alarmed her greatly. So she wasn't in that proceeding. She sent him a messenger. She sent Pilate a messenger say, well, tell my husband that this is what my concern is. And that concern, that the message from his wife put Pilate in a pickle. Think about this guy for a moment. He knows that these people are criminals, that these people are manipulative, hypocrites, religious thugs, pretending to be the real deal. So he knows all of this about them. He's afraid of losing his position with Caesar, which in fact he did a few years after this. And Herod just confirmed a non-guilty verdict. So he's saying, man, everything here points to the innocence of this man. And then to top things off, he's now dealing with the intuition of his wife. Now, my fellow husbands and I will agree to this. We should welcome insights from our wives. God has given them the ability to perceive situations from a different perspective, which usually involves emotions and how people are feeling. And that's exactly what's going on here. And this woman's intuition was spot on. Now, Matthew does not qualify her dream as prophetic, like some of the other dreams in the Bible. For example, when Joseph had a dream in the nativity scene, and now in the passion scene here, this woman has a dream. It's not necessarily prophetic. It could be that this was in everybody's mind. You know, it's certainly God intervened here and gave her that intuition. Pilate can never claim ignorance of Jesus' identity. See, Pilate can never say, whoops, I didn't know. No, you had the testimony of Herod. You had the testimony of the Jewish trial that couldn't even put two testimonies together, two witnesses together. I mean, it's pretty clear that these guys are running a scheme here. You have plenty of information here. Then your wife comes along and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. So Pilate can never claim ignorance. And like him, no one can ever protest on Judgment Day that they did not have enough information about the only way to heaven. They will never be able to say, whoops, I didn't know that Jesus was the only way. No, you do know that Jesus is the only way. He said it very clearly. You heard testimonies. You heard people say, you heard the gospel preached many times. Here in the United States, we're so blessed that we get to hear the gospel over and over and over again. There are people in the world who only get to hear it once. So no one on that day will be able to tell God, I didn't know who Jesus was. Just like the governor's wife, we, the church, sound the alarm. You see, we're the bride of Christ. We sound the alarm to a world that insists on rejecting Christ. And we know, church, that embracing him will cost people something. More now than 20 years ago here in this culture. There was a day, perhaps in the 80s, when believing in Christ was cool. 
You know, being a believer was good for business. You know, remember those days? Those days are over. Thank God. Because now we're forced to take a stand for Christ at the cost of something. It'll cost us social acceptance. There is a social cost of embracing Christ in his, his principles. So embracing him will cost people just like it would have cost Pilate. Doing the right thing would have cost him tremendously. Because the people kept yelling, if you go with Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. We'll see that next week. If you embrace Jesus, you're not a friend of Caesar. Well, I'd rather be a friend of the friend of sinners. How about that? Pilate chose to give in to popular the man, though he had the authority and the legal responsibility, not just the authority, but the legal responsibility to release the divine prisoner. This man, therefore, Pilate, gives us an example of failed leadership at its basic level. This is failed leadership 101. You don't give the people what they want. You side with Christ and His principles, no matter the cost. I just want to conclude by pointing out that every one of the three questions that Pilate asked in this scene has profoundly relevant issues for us. Are you the king of the Jews? forces us to make a decision about Christ's royalty. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Now that question drives us to recognize Christ's resolve. He has decided in his heart that he's going to follow through with what God has for him, no matter the cost. And the third question here addressed to the people, whom do you want me to release to you? Encourage us to investigate Christ's reproach. And what we mean by that is that people have rejected him. Let's not do the same. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.